Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to uh, Current Yield, the Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I'm Jim Grant, and with me in our brand new headquarters, as always, is Eric Whitehead. To my left, Eric is uh, at the controls, and uh, the great Evan Lorenz, Deputy Editor of Grant's, is directly across in uh, this room that's still kind of bearing the marks of a recent move. The place is full of cardboard boxes, is the truth of it. And to my right is Simon Michalowicz, who is, uh, you'll find out, Simon is a long-standing friend of mine and of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, and uh, he is here today to tell us about the financial arm of the administrative state, I think is one way of introducing it. No? Yeah, that's, okay. we, can, we, can, we can call it that. And uh, let me see, I think I have some business to transact. Yes, we are sponsored today in part by uh, Pitney Bowes and the Pitney Bowes Send Pro online, and in part, 50-50, mind you, by, uh, well, by Grant's Interest Rate Observer and in particular by the uh, upcoming spring conference. We can promise you on April 9th, we can promise you Whitehaven. I think Crocus is right. Yeah. Uh, serendipity, because the conferences are always uh, a serendipitous affair. Uh, we can promise you a stimulation and I think not a few fine, actionable ideas. That's the Grant's conference on April 9th, so you got to be there. Anyway, uh, without further ado, Simon Michalowicz, welcome to Current Yield. Well, thank you for having me. Well, it is great to have you here. And uh, and I, sh I should uh, give you a proper introduction. I was reflecting to Simon earlier that when you sit down with your friends for one of these podcasts, you assume that you know so much about them until you realize that you're going to have to fill up 15 or so seconds with facts rather than impressions. So I'm going to narrate some facts. Now, Simon is a gentleman of a certain middle age, and he comes to us from the Soviet Union, his family, and he emigrated from what was then Leningrad in 1978. And uh, Simon grew up in Baltimore and went to work. Your first job, the only job in which you had to report to somebody called Boss, yep. was uh, the old USF and G, now a branch of the Travelers. And then he went on to, uh, to uh, be one of the principals of IDESIS Capital, 16 years there, until 1998-2014. And Simon and his colleagues specialized in structured credit at first long, and then famously and most successfully short. And then, so Simon saw the credit structure close up, and he saw it in its health, putative health, and he saw it in its sickness, and sickness unto death. And he's always been a man who thought a great deal about the nature of money and what constitutes money and the authority behind money. And uh, now he is uh, founder, chief cook, and bottle washer of the Tofil Bullion Reserve. So Simon, tell us about what it is like to do business today, moving money, gold being money, mm -hmm. moving money across national boundaries. It's getting hard, getting harder. I mean, the impetus for this discussion, as you recall, we had a call a few days ago and we talked about uh, the Mueller investigation in general. And what it brought to my mind is that all these people who are being uh, prosecuted by this investigation, this is not a political statement, it's just an observation of fact. Uh, so far, no one has been indicted for colluding with Russia or for doing anything with Russia. But about a dozen people so far have been successfully prosecuted for various procedural crimes pertaining to failure to file forms, failure to report accounts, failure to uh, declare themselves as being... Uh, what they say, representative, you know, lobbying for foreign right. governments and all kinds of procedural forms. And um, this is what I see very much in the business that I'm in, where the banks and the uh, 
the long arm of financial branch of the government is, I would call it criminalizing, but making it very dicey, or at least making people feel very dicey, who are doing perfectly legitimate things that are completely not illegal. And, um, you know, it's so it becomes so easy to get yeah. snagged. You, you told me something about the increasingly menacing language of compliance, and you said that it has turned pernicious. Could you explain that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I actually have to fight with it every, every day, because the way that our organization is set up is we've employed a uh, large banking institution to do the what's called administration and they do compliance and so they communicate with our clients and uh, I always have to monitor these communications because sometimes they come out a little uh, menacing like for example I'll just read to you a standard letter that so the purpose of this letter is to simply to ask the client to please update the information and uh, tell the bank or this administrator whether any signatories have changed or whether there have been any other changes. who, Who wrote this letter? This letter is written by this bank who shall remain nameless for the moment. Is it a big dump bank? It's a it's a very large bank. It's a subsidiary of a bank that's in the business of providing compliance and uh, administration services to various Sounds private Sounds like a pretty funds. dull way of making a living. Maybe they have to do this just to spice things up a little bit, you think? It's a terrific way of making a living. Uh, but we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. So this is a letter to a normal person who is a law-abiding citizen whom this bank had previously investigated and approved as being fully in compliance with all, all right. laws and regulations. So here's they write. Hello, nothing, no, Mr. No, nothing. Hello. As a financial institution, we at XX Bank must comply with the relevant anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing policies and procedures to ensure compliance with current regulations. Robust anti-money laundering procedures are vital for all the global institutions in order to meet the regulatory requirements. And then all they say is, please update the (laughs) the file information on file. (laughs) So the question to them was, well, wh- why can't we just delete the first paragraph and just ask the people? They said that, yeah, that would be fine. <laughs> but they had to be asked. <laughs> so tell us, uh, by way of, I should have asked you this first, by way of preface, what do you do at the Tocqueville Bullion Reserve? What does it have to do with bullion and what does it have to do with the reserve? It's basically a, it's a vehicle that was set up precisely because of the compliance issues. I mean, that was set up. You set it up, right? Uh, I set it up with, sign, yes, right? I set it up with John Hathaway. Yeah. Uh, whom you know, right. uh, to uh, essentially enable U.S. citizens to own, to buy at wholesale physical bullion, and then to store it in various places, either in the United States or in Switzerland or Singapore or other safe havens, uh, in a way that's completely compliant with U.S. laws and regulations. And uh, given the laws and regulations, which we can discuss, it's, it's not as straightforward or at least it's no longer as straightforward as it well, seems. Well, it would seem the simplest thing in the world. So I, I have my doubts about the Federal Reserve, let us say hypothetically. Right. And I get in touch with you, with John Hathaway, and I say, uh, gentlemen, I, I would like to avail myself of your services. I want to I buy a million dollars worth of, of ingots, mm-hmm. uh, not to lose Krugerrands. I want to do it properly. I want to buy a million dollars worth. And I, I, I would like to store it in, um, I don't know, someplace uh, um, warmer than Minneapolis, for example, Singapore, right? Okay. Okay. Let's say. Uh, what happens? You open an account, the the bank that who writes these letters does anti-money laundering review, approves you, and uh, then... Oh, wait, what, what does that entail? You are, well, it depends. It's If you're just an individual, you have to submit your passport, your utility bill. They will check on the internet. You have to disclose whether you're a politically sensitive person. Uh, well, I am people. a little sensitive to political things. Well, you may be sensitive. To, we're all sensitive to political things these days, but it doesn't mean that we are <laughs> ourselves politically exposed. I think it's politically exposed all persons. Right. So anyway, they have, the, they have their criteria. They figure out whether it's 
okay, whether you're okay. If, and if you, God forbid, if you have a trust, you know, for your family or something like that, then, then, then it's a whole different level of, it's like the first circle of hell, then there are two, there are multiple circles. Then they investigate you further. If they say it's okay, you uh, wire the funds, we buy the bullion uh, from directly from the refinery, and it gets delivered uh, into the warehouse once it sits until you want it back or, or money back at which point we'll sell it for you. Okay, well, let's say that I, in uh, six or eight months, I, I hear Chairman Jay Powell uh, acquit himself at a press conference with a special common sense and patience and humility. And I say, well, I want, I want my money out of this stupid, inert, shiny ingot stuff, and I want it back in dollar bills, which I trust because I have this thing about Jay Powell now. So I say to you, sell the gold, give me the money. What, how, I mean, I'm trying to figure out, Simon, where the complexity comes in with respect to compliance and with the, the long arm of the financial authorities. It sounds so far as if you're operating with minimal intervention. Uh, well, it sounds so far with minimal intervention because of the way it's set up. Let's say you decided to do this yourself, for yourself. So you would have to open an account with some entity somewhere who would sell you gold. Uh, if, you, if you're talking about a few coins, that's very easy. You can walk into a pawn shop, you know, this bulletproof glass, gentleman with a gun, safe behind his back, you know. You can go up rickety steps on 47th Street. All right, all right. Uh, all right, okay, you got that. Uh, but if you wanted to buy, say, a million dollars, I mean, there's really no infrastructure in the United States for high net worth individuals to buy larger sums of physical gold through professional, unless it's a bank. Now, if it's not a bank, if you wanted to do what, what we do, uh, you couldn't do it because you couldn't open an account with a wholesale dealer who sells it at the kind of prices that the banks uh, well, What buy. does that say about, uh, I wonder about a sentiment towards gold? It seems to me that the first and most eloquent statement of sentiment with respect to gold is it still was evidence eight trillion dollars worth of securities worldwide are priced to yield less than nothing of debt security last time i looked about a week ago yes all right so the owners of eight trillion dollars worth of bonds not bills mind you but bonds yielding probably a few basis points less than nothing right so yeah. uh, but rather have that guaranteed contractual loss than buy that thing which has endured for millennia and out yields the bonds denominated in fiat currencies. So that's that's one expression of the world's sentiment with regard to money. Another and much more granular, I guess, is is the absence, as you say, of infrastructure for buying it in what a, an ordinary one percent might regard as a, as a round lot. Well, first of all, the people who are buying negative yield bonds are not investors; they're investment managers. It's not their money. <laughs> <laughs> they have an allocation well, model, I, and they're allocating. Or, or it's banks, because uh, a negative yielding government bond's a high quality liquid asset. It, it's that it ticks a lot of boxes. Whereas if they bought gold, that's a risky asset. They'd have to hold a lot of capital against. I mean, it, it's kind of funny. Well, actually, under Basel III, I think uh, I'm not sure exactly when it's getting implemented, but uh, it's imminently. Uh, gold is now a tier one asset. It's going to be a tier one asset for the banks, but it hasn't been up to now. So, so, so yes. where does it take effect? I, I don't. I don't know. Well, let's actually, check we have it. to look it up. Evan? All right, mark that down. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of Pitney Bowes, and it's SendPro Online. And now this is an online software that helps you save time and money no matter what you send. Letters, packages, overnights, flats, but not bullion. And you'll always pay the right amount. It comes with a free 10-pound scale that weighs and calculates rates for you. Plus, you can compare options between a USPS, UPS, and FedEx right at your fingertips. So on January 27th, uh, USPS, that's the Postal Service, uh, they raised rates just like the Fed was going to do until it decided it was not going to do it. But the Postal Service, unlike the Fed, actually went ahead 
It seems to me that the uh, Postal Service is the uh, little more courageous bureaucracy of the two. Raised quite a bit, by the way. Yeah. But just by using SendPro online, you get discounts of up to 40% off Postal Service priority mail shipping. And you get five cents off every letter you send. No additional equipment is needed. Just log onto your computer and use your own printer to print shipping labels and stamps. So SendPro Online is only $14.99 a month, and listeners can get a free 30-day trial when you visit pb.com slash grantspod. That's pb as in uh, peanutbutter.com grantspod. You get a free 10-pound scale that will ship to you at no additional cost to help you weigh your packages and letters. Uh, so thank you, uh, Pitney Bowes. 10 pounds make a heck of a, a pile of gold, wouldn't it? That would be about five kilos, right? That would be about $200,000. Yeah. And it doesn't take much room. <laughs> it's like, uh, what is it, a few iPhones. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, if you, if you were to do this, this, implement this trade as an individual, you would run into all manner of difficulties and no infrastructure to boot, right? Yes. You would okay. have, first of all, to opening an account. Uh, nobody who deals in this commercially is going to want to deal with you because the amount of anti-money laundering work that's required is uneconomical for a one-off transaction. So, they, so commercial entities do not want to deal with individuals. Secondly, uh, the reporting requirements uh, are extremely ambiguous. And the reason I say they're pernicious, because the, the foreign bank account form that used to go to the IRS now goes to the organization that's innocuously called FinCEN. Until you look up the website, it's called Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. Now, what law-abiding citizen feels warm cockles in his heart? You know, or, or who, whose, whose cockles are warmed, you know, by being registered with a for, you know, financial crimes enforcement network while doing something perfectly legal. And then, of course, uh, these reporting requirements are notoriously ambiguous. It says, you know, you don't have to report physical metals if you hold them directly. Doesn't mean, doesn't explain what directly means, like in your sock drawer directly or in a warehouse directly. And if you look into further regulations, so if, I, if I were a client of yours, would I be holding metals directly or, through, or indirectly through you? You would be a partner in a Delaware limited partnership, which is perfectly legitimate, compliant with all the regulations in the Delaware, and you'd be getting Delaware tax but, forms. But still, as to the question of directness, would I be direct holder? Or you, you would be in the U.S. tax system. You wouldn't need to worry about any of this. Oh, so it's all fine then, right? It, that's, that's no, it's what, not fine, Simon. It's, it's we're fine. here because it's not fine. Well, we have a way to make it fine, and you have an option to... Well, you, you are now describing your compliance with the letter and the spirit of the laws, but you have an observation or two about the nature of the regulations with which you do comply, right? Well, the, the, Is there anything we, you want to tell the government, Simon, whenever we're sitting here? No, no, the, no, we comply with everything. I mean, the, 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 the issue, look, I mean, given where I grew up, you know, when, when I start getting letters that say, you know, unless, you know, with the red stripe, you know, crossing them, uh, that's a, that, that use the language, you know, financial crimes enforcement network and, you know, compliance with terrorist financing and money laundering, it, it makes it very foreboding. And the problem is, is because the rules are so, we've made them clear in the way we've set things up. But because if you do it yourself, the rules are so ambiguous, the chances of getting snagged. The penalties, by the way, you can lose 50% of your money plus criminal penalties. That's the penalty for so non-compliance. That's, that's like a bad month in the gold stock market. That's not 50% is nothing. Uh, well, it's nothing. Yeah, in penny in penny gold stocks, it's nothing. Uh, but uh, it's, it's so Simon. The not so distant political backdrop to this discussion is a, a woman named Elizabeth Warren and others like her in the Democratic Party. And I dare say some I don't know some uh, nosing around the peripheries of the Republican Party. I mean, they don't like um, rich people either. But Anyway, there, there is a, what is the word, mem. There is a, a kind of a, a theme in our politics. That's the theme of confiscation, of envy, of collectivism, what have you, socialism. And there is talk, not 
such loose talk, but rather specific talk about a wealth tax. Now, uh, so people have, uh, have done some reading, do know that in 1933 and 34, the U.S. government first nationalized and then criminalized gold bullion, criminalized the possession of it for individuals. So people have come to me and they have said, is there any way of buying gold with currency, a lot of gold, a lot of currency, and keeping it someplace that perhaps Elizabeth Warren won't be able to find. Now, just between us, nobody, nobody listening to this is going to, you know, share. This is within the Grant's family. Right. Can you do that? Not anymore. <laughs> that train has left the station. <laughs> if I learned anything in the Soviet Union, you got to do things when when you can do them, not when you need to do them. <laughs> By the time you need to do them. All right. Too late. So that's over, right? It's over. I mean, the war on cash. Look, I mean, what's actually what we're talking about, the gist of what we're talking about is criminalization of privacy, not criminalization of doing anything correctly, criminalization of privacy. There's no reason why people, if you report everything correctly, why should everybody know where your assets are, if the taxes have been properly paid and you've earned these assets fairly and squarely. But this what this language that, I t that I'm telling you about, these forms, these ambiguous regulations that can be turned against you on a dime, it essentially criminalizes your ability to keep some privacy in any of your affairs. And that's pernicious. Yes, it is. Well, I I'm going to interrupt this for just a moment because readers, listeners have asked, so what are you guys reading? Which is a little bit of, got to put you on the spot, right? You can't be reading the New York Post as invaluable as the Post is. You have to be assiduously conducting some reading program. So I've come prepared, and I'm going to mention two things apropos of what am I reading. First of all, I would like to put in a word for page A5 of Thursday, January 31st edition of the Wall Street Journal. I'm not sure if you guys have seen this. This is fabulous. It's a paid advertiser. The headline is an open letter to anyone who will listen. And it's from Nick Vitale. He's 36 years old, lives in Milltown, New Jersey. He bought a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal just to air it out. He says, uh, every time he says, uh, I go anyplace, I'm always told, we want to hear from you. So. Nick wants you to know what is on his mind. So here's some of the things that he's writing about here in this full page ad sponsored by Nick Vitale only. First of all, air travel. It bothers him that the overhead bins are crammed full of stuff. He, 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 just, he doesn't see why he have to put his backpack under his seat. And in another related matter, he says, uh, ride sharing services are really great, but can you just fold the 18% tip into the fare? Why the extra bother of transacting with that? It's supposed to be one call, cell phone manufacturers. He wants the latest model. You have to throttle his current phone to make him want more. And a gas station, here, gas stations. I really appreciate that some of you have started putting hand sanitizer dispensers by the pump. What's taking the rest of you so long? Subscription services for music? Yes. Subscription services for dress socks? No. Thanks for listening. Hope it helps. <laughs> and if any of you wish to discuss these matters further, please don't hesitate to reach out. It's Nick Vitale, Milltown, New Jersey. Can I ask you how much does this cost? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but you know, now that you think about it, he's right. <laughs> I know, but how much does a page of a Wall Street Journal cost? I mean, this is <laughs> a hundred thousand. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. All right, that's one thing I'm reading today. Uh, uh, a, a page in Grants might be cheaper and reach a better quality audience. Yeah, Nick. Hey, <laughs> give me a call. All right, that's one thing I'm reading. I'm reading also, this is going to sound a little pretentious after reading this much more interesting thing, but a book came in the mail from Amazon. It was, it was addressed to my wife, Patricia, and it was Vita Sackville West, who was an eminent author of the turn of the 20th century. He wrote, he wrote a book called All Passion Spent. 
It doesn't really sound promising, uh, but I, I picked it up and started reading it. It's a magnificent writer. It's a book about youth and age. It's a novel, maybe scarcely 200 pages. It came out in 1930-something or other. And she wrote also a book called The Edwardians. I'm going to read that too. So if you're interested in, a, in the Grant's Interest Rate Observer, early 20th century novel canon, I would suggest to all passion spent by Vita Sackville West. Yeah, I have a great book recommendation. Well, if anybody's interested. Yeah, I, I I came across this interview uh, a couple of months ago uh, on YouTube. Uh, um, Charlie Rose interviewed James Goldsmith. Oh, in, in, yeah, fascinating. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Uh, and so the the interview was in connection with the book, which is called The Trap. Uh, I just was reading The Trap. I, I have it on my night table. Ah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's again. It's about two hundred pages long, and it's a series of interviews that he conducted with the French writer Le Figaro. That's right. And uh, it's kind of the the prevision of Trump. It's 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 worse than that. I mean, it's more than that. It's a prevision of the whole globalization yeah, and yeah, the yeah. rise of China, and what he happened hates to globalization. our globalization. He hates uh, intensive agriculture. He he. Uh, anyway, it's 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 a marvelous. The drug epidemic. The, yes. the opioid crisis. It's all there. Yeah. It was written in nineteen ninety four. The Trap by Jay. I had, I had dinner with him once. I got a call from his people, and I said, join us for dinner at someplace Lower Manhattan. And um, I don't know, it's, 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 it's just that one, I, that we, we didn't become pals because it's that one, one event, but uh, he was a fascinating person. He was a guy who, who carried on two families across, one on either side of the English Channel for about 20 years, I think. He was famous by saying that every time you marry your mistress, there's a job opening. Anything else? Um, well, I mean, it's, uh, you know, listening to all these political uh, back and forth, it seems like uh, it seems like people don't. Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, I wrote a piece recently that's called Not Bearish Enough. Which, by the way, arises from from our conversation. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember? I, so you called me the day after the uh, uh, Lehman collapse, and you said, "Simon, we haven't been bearish enough." And we were pretty bearish. And we were pretty bearish. We were about as bearish as it gets. So I wrote a piece a week and a half ago or so um, that's called "Not Bearish Enough," because every time I talk to uh, financial professionals, even very astute financial professionals, who are bearish on the markets, they're sort of Upper East Side bearish. Uh, they, they think that, uh, you know, the, the scope of their concern... Down 12% until Jay Powell gets concerned? Correct. Yeah. Something like that. Which translates into very low demand for physical gold. Now, I, <laughs> I, I know I keep coming back to that, but, but it's a symptom because the reason to buy... I mean, there are many people who speculate in gold, just like in anything else, pork bellies and commodities and all kinds of things. But physical gold is really for somebody who's, who wants independence, who wants real reserve, who has concerns But you know, about so, I mean, you told me something risks. about this, this trade years ago. We were sitting around... Uh, maybe over dinner talking about uh, gold, and you said, you know, gold is, it's not an end of itself. Gold is about having liquidity when the time comes to buy something at a price that will never recur in your lifetime. That is correct. And I still say that. I, I just said it, Simon. Uh, well, and I, and I said it years ago. <laughs> you, you said it many times, and I still yeah. say it. Because it's a means to an end. It's a means to an end. Wealth is created in spurts. I mean, well, wealth is created in spurts. Ah, everybody thinks that you can invest and you can generate a certain return every year in the stock market over and over and over again. And and the last thirty five years have taught people potentially this kind of lesson, but in reality, if you look throughout history, wealth usually is created in, in bursts 
of time. Well, we, uh, we, 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 we are on the same page, and Edward Macquarie is one of the speakers at the Grants Conference. Did I mention this before, Grants Conference? Yeah. On you, April, you may have done. April 9th, and Ed Macquarie is a former professor at the Santa Clara University. It was, was his field, sociology, maybe? Or is it? No, no, marketing? marketing. Oh, sorry. Ed, I'm sorry. Sociology. No, marketing is a serious idea, and sociology less so. Anyway, so marketing. But Ed Macquarie took an interest in the cycles of finance. They got interested in uh, stocks, stocks in the long run. run. Yeah. Stocks in the long run. One of the most uh, popular and successful investing books of our time. The thesis of which, of course, is that you never go wrong and have never gone wrong in the history of post-constitutional America if you own stocks over the course of 25 years of a generation, right? That was the thesis. And he, along with Dick Silla, who was the great financial historian at NYU, went back and and uh, did all this painstaking work of assembling price quotations from obscure securities and obscure intervals of uh, financial history and, uh, and found that actually it's been quite easy uh, to lose a lot of money over a lengthy period of time, which speaks to your proposition that wealth is created in spurts and not continuously. And lost in spurts. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you go back and say, all right, let us, uh, we did done this trick at grants, I suppose, maybe once too often, but you go back and, uh, and propose that uh, in ancient uh, times uh, at the, uh, what do we say, with the death of... Uh, Cleopatra, and you death. go to the bank uh, forever, so you can yeah. actually... Right, you make a $100 deposit in the Bank of Eternity, right? And you compound that at 2% a year, simple, and over the course of the next uh, couple of millennia, look, you, you check your passbook, savings account, and there is enough wealth compounded to confer on every single living human being on this planet a net worth in excess of, like, $3 billion or something. But it's it's it's... It's a little bit crazy, so I, but notice that hasn't happened. And why isn't it? Well, there's no Bank of Eternity, right? And uh, there are wars, uh, there are political uh, disruptions, there is discontinuity in human history. So it turns out we're not all worth $3 billion, right? Some of us are worth less. Well, the Medici's would have been the richest people in the, in the history of the world, and they would still be uh, in the society pages. And so would be the Fuggers. If anybody never heard of Fugger, that was the richest man in the world at his yeah. time, as a German banker yeah. who banked uh, the kings. Yeah. No, I mean, that's... He, he's still living, is he? Uh, no, he's not. Uh, for about, I think, gone about four or five hundred years. His parents aren't well either, I suppose. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, that, uh, that's discontinuity. There was a discontinuity <laughs> there. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not just the human mortality. It's, it's the events. of wealth. Is, yeah. But it's not history to me. I mean, my career, I've been in the investment business for like 35 years. And basically, there were four opportunities which have delivered pretty much everything that I have. Yeah. Uh, and the rest of the time, it's like, you know, a fisherman is a patient man. There's been a lot of waiting. So uh, that, was, that was the late Alex Porter and I had this uh, Japan uh, value, deep value fund, and along with Ken Shirley, we had it for a long time. And uh, at the end, we, we, we started to wind it up. We, we did, the stocks were just as cheap uh, 15 years in as they had been when we arrived. And uh, so at, the way Alex presented this to the would-be buyers of our somewhat illiquid positions was, Hey, we've done the waiting for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Simon, thank you for being here. This has been merely delightful, as it so often is, in the company of Eric Whitehead and Evan Lorenz. And uh, I am Jim Grant. Oh, before signing off, I want to make a little announcement. Evan, you listening to this? I'm right here. Yeah. Well, um, I am an alumnus of Barron's, uh, we used to be Barron's National Business and Financial Weekly, the Dow Jones Weekly. I was there for about eight years, from 1975 to 83, when uh, I founded Grants. 
And we have been talking, not Rupert Murdoch and me so much, as some of his executives about doing some business together, Barron's and Dow Jones Media Group and Grants. So yeah, we're, we're, we're doing some of this. And starting, I guess by the time you hear this, you might even have read it, but I'm, I've got a column in Barron's every other week to the end of uh, promoting both Barron's and Grants. How's that? It's, a, it's called commerce, right? It's called homecoming. Yeah, it's homecoming. <laughs> So here we are in the Woolworth Building, which is where Grants Interest Rate Observer started out in 1983. And here I am reverting to the current yield column in Barron's, which I started in 1980. Now, some would call this progress and some would call it, well, let's just say, let's just call it sweetness, shall we? All right. Sounds good. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Until next time, this is uh, Current Yield. Mm-hmm.